Welcome to the Sandy Springs United Methodist Church Podcast, where we bring you weekly sermons that uplift your soul, strengthen your spirit, and praise the Lord. Whatever your reason for listening, we're grateful for you spending your time with us. May God open your heart to love and your ears to hear. Please remain standing for the reading of the gospel. Our first lesson this morning is from Luke chapter 19. Listen for the word of God. Our ears are open. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Please be seated. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Today, salvation has come to this house. Today, right here, right now, you have witnessed the kingdom of God. This is what salvation looks like. Now, if you were to ask me when I was growing up, what is salvation, I would have given you a very straightforward answer. Salvation is going to heaven when you die. A large part of my experience of the Christian message as a kid was the solemn repetition of this question. If you were to die tonight, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you would go to spend an eternity with God in heaven? The implication of the question, of course, was that if you did not know beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you were not 100% certain, there was a distinct likelihood that you would be spending eternity somewhere else. So at camps and revivals and indoor camp meetings and more than one Billy Graham crusade that I attended, God rest his saintly soul, I heard this question and I wondered about my own salvation. The question, of course, was always followed by an invitation— Come to the altar, confess your sins, and believe in Jesus, and you can get saved. And know that when you die, you will spend an eternity with God. So what was I to do? There I sat on more than one occasion, crunching the numbers, examining my own spiritual state to decide if I was really saved. Now, I was always pretty good at math as a kid, but it didn't take an advanced degree in mathematics to put myself on the right side of the odds on this question. If I got saved at the altar once, but wasn't 100% sure of that salvation in the moment, it couldn't hurt to get saved all over again. 
So I think as a kid, I must have gotten saved at least three or four times, give or take. But all of these experiences left me with the distinct impression that salvation was for the dead and not for the living. Something far off in the future and applied only to individual souls. So what about you? Have you thought about this question lately? If someone stopped you on the street and asked, what is salvation? What might you say? If you were anything like me, you might be a bit surprised by the stark and direct proclamation of Jesus at the end of our reading this morning. Today, salvation has come to this house. Today, right here and right now, you have witnessed the kingdom of God. This is what salvation looks like. This is quite a pronouncement from a teacher who has spent a great deal of time describing salvation with mysterious parables that do not have clear or straightforward answers. So what indeed is salvation in this story? Well, this beloved and well-known story of Zacchaeus of children's song fame comes at a pivotal moment in Luke's gospel. From this point on, the gospel speeds hastily towards the crucifixion. It should not be surprising, then, that this story is shot through with a decisive sense of urgency. Jesus is passing through Jericho, that famous town where walls come crumbling down and God does mighty and unexpected things. There's no time, though, for Jesus to stop and commemorate this incredible and ancient story because he is on his way to Jerusalem. And in this journey, it sets into motion the events that will lead to his death. His time of teaching and of ministry is coming to an end, and Jesus is in a hurry. Zacchaeus, too, is gripped with a sense of urgency. In his position and status, Zacchaeus is an important man, a big man, even. He's a chief tax collector with the backing of the Roman Empire. Now, in the ancient world, a tax collector was not like your friendly neighborhood IRS agent is today. (laughs) Tax collectors were like private franchisees who paid the Roman government for the right to collect taxes in their districts. They would then gouge the population in their districts for as much money as they could possibly grab. And every penny they gathered, more than what they had paid the Roman government, they put into their own pockets. It would be like if the United States government collected its taxes by contracting with a bail bond company or a payday loan company. So naturally, Zacchaeus and his fellow tax collectors are not favored members of their communities. But Zacchaeus can't help being drawn by the crowds that are gathering around Jesus. He senses the urgency of this moment. Who is this curious person he's heard so much about in recent days? Why are people so drawn to him? He thinks, if I can only get a look at Jesus, perhaps, perhaps I can see who he is. Perhaps if I can just see this man who gives sight to the blind, I might see my own life in a new and unexpected light. At the very least, I can witness the spectacle, the phenomenon that is this teaching healer from Galilee. Hey, rumor has it, he even likes to hang out with tax collectors like me. So Zacchaeus takes off running at a full sprint. 
He is a powerful and wealthy man who normally looks down on his fellow community members from behind a big desk with stacks of cash and ledgers. But this dignified man who is big in status is short in stature. Unable to see through the crowd, Zacchaeus lets the curiosity, the excitement, maybe even the hope get the better of him. So this short man, this wee little man, and here I need to pause to give a shout out to my fellow shorties. The struggle is real. But this wee little man who is powerful, though, uh, makes a spectacle of himself, and he takes off running. He runs ahead of the crowds and scrambles up a tree alongside the neighborhood children to catch a glimpse of this man whose face is set toward Jerusalem. And so there he is, out on a limb. Just picture it. He's a well-known, famous man. He's wealthy. He's probably wearing fine clothes. He's normally surrounded by the trappings of power. He now sits on his precarious perch on this tree limb, exposed for all the crowd to see, straining to see Jesus like a 12-year-old who's lost his ticket to the circus. He takes a risk. He puts himself out there in this odd and extravagant way, hoping to catch a glimpse of salvation. Jesus doesn't disappoint. Right on cue, here he comes and proceeds to break every rule of proper manners. As if there simply isn't time for formality, Jesus skips the introductions and calls out to Zacchaeus, telling him to hurry down the tree because he must stay at his house today, right now. The crowds grumble, grumble perhaps, uh, in jealousy that Jesus would honor uh, an open sinner like Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus pays them no mind. He scrambles out of that tree, again in a hurry, as Luke tells us, and greets Jesus with joy. You can almost see the goofy grin on his face as he greets Jesus. But the spectacle in this story doesn't end where our beloved children's song ends, with Jesus merrily on his way to be a guest in Zacchaeus' home. Having come out of the tree, having come off that literal limb, Zacchaeus surprises us and everyone around him by taking an even bolder, more extravagant risk. He puts himself out there again, climbs out onto an even riskier limb, and empties himself of his wealth and his power. Behold, he says, watch this. I am giving half of everything I have to the poor. Watch, if I have defrauded anyone, I will pay them back fourfold. This is risky, sacrificial giving, and it is offered in a moment of exuberant joy, making Zacchaeus a wonderful example of that biblical saying that God loves a cheerful giver. What trust Zacchaeus must have had in God's provision, in the abundance of God's gifts, to bestow these gifts so abundantly on his community and in such an urgent way. Now, it's only in light of this that we can understand what Jesus says next. Today, salvation has come to this house. Today, right here and right now, you have witnessed the kingdom of God. This, this is what salvation looks like. This right here is the very reason I have come, to seek out and save the lost. If you haven't understood my parables and teachings, if you are confused about the meaning of my future death and resurrection, remember Zacchaeus. 
I am running out of time to explain this to you. This, here, now, this is salvation. It's a curious thing. Zacchaeus doesn't confess his faith in Jesus. He doesn't repent, throw himself on God's mercy, and ask for forgiveness. He gives his money away, and Jesus proclaims in the most unequivocal manner that here we are witnessing salvation in action. In this passage, and in Luke's gospel more generally, salvation is present. It is urgent. And very often, it looks like the wealthy giving their money away for the good of the poor and the benefit of those who have suffered from exploitation and injustice. If someone stopped you on the street and asked you, what is salvation? What might you say? If someone asked me, and I'm honest, I probably wouldn't lead with, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Yet just before meeting Zacchaeus, this is exactly what Jesus does. On his journey to Jerusalem, before he reaches Jericho, Jesus is stopped by an unidentified ruler who asks him, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what is salvation and how do I get it? Jesus tells him, sell everything you own and give to the poor. The man leaves distraught, Luke tells us, because he was very rich. Then Jesus offers one of his most challenging teachings. He says, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this teaching could not believe their ears, and they protested, saying, Jesus, if this is true, who then can be saved? Jesus responded, what is impossible for mortals is possible for God. This is the immediate backdrop to Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus in Jericho. Zacchaeus is the counterpoint to this rich ruler. His story is the story of a camel passing through the eye of a needle. His salvation is nothing short of miraculous. Today, salvation has come to this house. Today, right here and right now, you have witnessed the kingdom of God. This is what salvation looks like. So here we sit some 2,000 years later, and we ponder this question. What is salvation? Certainly, we are right to say that salvation includes so much of our experience as humans, so much of our life, our relationships with God and with others. It includes our resurrection and spending an eternity with God when we die. My younger self wasn't entirely off base about that one. But Jesus leaves us with no doubts that whatever else salvation is, it includes a radical shift in the way we relate to material wealth. Salvation somehow also includes economics. In fact, as those of you participating in Pastor Kate's study learned last week, Jesus talks about money more than any other topic other than the kingdom of God itself. So what are we to make of all this? I must confess that I don't have easy answers. I certainly have not sold everything I own and given it to the poor. 
But as followers of Jesus, we must hear his challenge to us and examine the world around us and our relationship to our money. We need to see this as an urgent matter related to the salvation that Jesus came to bring, just as Zacchaeus did. Zacchaeus teaches us what salvation means for our money, and it looks like freedom and abundance. Zacchaeus goes out on a limb with his money. He takes a great risk in giving half of his wealth to the poor, and then after that making restitution for all those he cheated, Zacchaeus frees himself from captivity to his possessions, from the worship of his money. He frees himself from the anxiety of feeling that no matter how much money he has, he can never have enough. He frees himself from isolation in his community by refusing to continue exploiting his neighbors for his own benefit. He trusts in God's abundance and so bestows abundant gifts on his community. He experiences freedom and God's abundance. He experiences salvation. But it isn't just Zacchaeus who experiences these things. By freeing himself from attachment to his possessions, Zacchaeus lifts up the poor and exploited in his city. They too experience a new kind of economic freedom, freedom from hunger and deprivation, freedom from the struggle to survive, freedom from the shame and moral blame so often cast upon the poor. They find abundance where they least expected it, from the hands of a common tax collector. They experience freedom and God's abundance. They experience salvation. What are we supposed to do to experience freedom and abundance in our lives like Zacchaeus and his community? The answer to this question will look differently for each of us. But one important starting place for all of us might be the biblical teaching to offer back to God a portion or a tithe of the income we receive. We give back to God first because by doing so, we acknowledge that everything we have and everything we are comes from God and belongs to God. When we do this in a way which is truly sacrificial, when we challenge ourselves in our giving and join Zacchaeus out on that limb, we begin to free ourselves from attachment to our money. We open ourselves to the freedom and abundance God desires for us and for our communities. I'm still learning a lot about Sandy Springs United Methodist Church, but one thing I have learned quickly is that this is a generous community. And as you know, we are in the midst of our annual stewardship campaign here. A big thank you to Bill for his testimony uh, earlier on in the service. There are many reasons you give to this community and many reasons to consider increasing, increasing your giving to the ministries of this church. Your contributions support ministries that feed people physically and spiritually. They enable us to continue the life-changing mission of this congregation, meeting vital needs in our surrounding community. Giving to this church is a discipline that shapes us individually and that lifts up those around us in need of healing, restoration, and community. As I pray during this season about making a pledge to this campaign, I'm challenged by the risky and sacrificial giving of Zacchaeus and by Jesus' call to release myself from being overly attached to my possessions. 
Our giving to the ministries of this local church is one part, a first step in our call to respond to the gospel message of salvation that includes economic freedom and abundance. Jesus' desire is for us in our giving that in every way and in our communities we might live out of this sense of freedom, of abundance in all of our relationships with money, including an examination of the wider issues related to wealth and poverty. In our country and in our world, wealth disparities have been growing rapidly for decades. This year, 26 individual persons own more wealth than the poorest 3.8 billion people on earth. 26 individual persons own more wealth than the poorest 3.8 billion people on earth. With a fortune of $112 billion, Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of Amazon, is the world's richest person. Just 1% of his wealth amounts to approximately the same amount as the entire health budget of the country of Ethiopia with its 105 million people. What if the wealthiest individuals in this world joined Zacchaeus out on that limb and experienced salvation in the same way he did? What if they freed themselves from attachment to their wealth, trusted in God's abundance, and were willing to give sacrificially so that others might, free, might experience freedom and abundance as well? If Jeff Bezos met Jesus on the road and asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, what is salvation, and how do I get it? What do you suppose Jesus might ask of him before proclaiming, today salvation has come to this house? This isn't just an issue for the super-duper wealthy in our world. Credit Suisse Bank estimates that as of 2018, persons who hold more than $93,000 in net assets make up 10% of the world's population. But this 10% of the population holds 85% of the world's total wealth. At the same time, even in a relatively, country, a relatively wealthy country like ours, a majority of households report that they could not sustain an unexpected cost of more than $1,000 without going into debt. In light of Luke's gospel and the example of Zacchaeus, we are invited to ask, what must change in this situation before Jesus can proclaim, today, salvation has come to this house. In this world, we have far exceeded the productive capacity to supply the basic survival needs of every man, woman, and child on this planet. Yet some wealthy countries consume and waste an inordinate amount of the world's resources, while others languish in deprivation. What must change in the relationships between the poor and the rich in our world and in our country before Jesus can proclaim, today, salvation has come to this house? There are no easy answers to such challenges. But whatever else salvation might include, the story of Zacchaeus teaches us that it is urgent, it is present, and it is ultimately good news to the poor. Luke's gospel challenges us not to view the rich as moral heroes while casting blame on the poor for their own poverty. 
Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. When Mary learns that she is pregnant with the Messiah, she proclaims that in Jesus, God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. And despite all the evidence to the contrary, God is still capable of threading camels through the eye of a needle. The truth is that we all depend upon the miracle of God's saving love for our salvation. And the good news is that this love is at work in the world even now. God desires to pronounce on every life and in every place, today salvation has come to this house. Today, right here and right now, you have witnessed the kingdom of God. This This is what salvation looks like. May it be so through the power of the resurrected Christ. Amen. So now go in peace, knowing that when we go out on that limb, God meets us there with salvation and provides. May we live in peace with our neighbors, trusting that God has provided abundantly for each of us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sandy Springs United Methodist Church podcast. We hope that you have found our podcast helpful and hope to be in ministry not only to you, but with you. For more information about Sandy Springs United Methodist Church, please visit www.ssumc.org. Until next time, may God bless you.